Hey, good morning, family. Good morning. Grab your Bibles. Uh, turn to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, that's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. We're looking at the uh, second scene uh, in this beautiful story about God's redemption. And today we're going to be talking about uh, how the Lord shows compassion to the vulnerable in society. And so if you would please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Ruth 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moet said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, Lord be with you. And they answered, Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued early, from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to gleam, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gathered in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I am worked is today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. 
So she kept close to the young woman of Bo women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray, family. Lord Christ, we love you. Thank you for your word to us, your word for us. And Lord, we pray that, uh, I just ask that your spirit would come now and open up our eyes to see and to hear what you are saying to us today, to us in this room. Show us your character. Show us what you want your people to be like. Change us by your word and by your power. And help us see Jesus in this. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The, the people of God have always been called to stand out for, from the world like a light in a dark place. Not so much through surface differences like our clothes or hair, this kind of a thing, but through a, by living through a deeply different set of values than the world that is around us. The question is, what happens when the world around us is increasingly corrupt and tribal? What happens when the majority of the population values power over truth, values personal gain more than virtue. When the majority of people are looking out for themselves and their kind, the people of God are tempted to speak and to think and to act just the same way to survive. There is this gradual but a very strong temptation for Christians to abandon the values of their God we are tempted to think, you know what, it's just not practical to live by the values of God's kingdom right now. That's just not going to work right now. So we slowly blend into the very culture that we are supposed to be shining a light into. You guys remember how the book of Ruth started? You guys remember that verse, chapter 1, verse 1? In the day that the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. In the days that the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, this tells us the setting of the book of Ruth. The days of the judges in Israel's history was a time period when the people of God decided that God would no longer be their king. They didn't want to listen to God. They didn't want to obey God. God wasn't going to be their king, but they also didn't trust a human king. They didn't want anyone to rule over them or anyone tell them what to do. Historically, it was the equivalent of a really bad Mad Max film, all right? This was like total anarchy everywhere you went. Righteousness was rare. Righteous living was rare. The phrase that is repeated, I almost wondered if I should have like, should we preach through judges and then go to Ruth? But like the phrase that you hear throughout the entire book of Judges is this. There was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did was right in their own eyes, what they wanted to do, what they liked to do. So in the middle of anarchy and famine, and by the way, I don't think there was any accident that there just happened to be a famine going on at that time. 
God's people were abandoning the values of their God and they were adopting a might-makes-it-right mentality. Pragmatism was the philosophy of the day. If it gets my results, then it's right to do it. They were all acting like the nations around them instead of standing out like a light in the darkness, which is exactly why they were put there in the first place. And the book of Ruth is set right smack in the middle of that dark period of history. In this particular chapter, we see a new character comes on the scene. His name is Boaz. What, what a name for a man. Boaz. This is Bo. He's a man's man-man, right? righteous man he's choosing to live according to God's law in the day of the judges when it's really hard to live by God's instructions Boaz is put here to show us how believers are to live in a morally compromised society here's what we learn from the story this is the big idea today the people of God distinguish themselves from the people of the world by showing compassion to the vulnerable the people of God distinguish themselves from the peoples of the world by showing compassion to the vulnerable. And so we're going to talk about what does that actually look like, because that's what Boaz is showing us. What does this actually look like? Well, godly compassion sees the vulnerable and asks a question. Godly compassion sees the vulnerable and asks a question. Let's go to the text, verse 5 and 6. Then Boaz says to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's a young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. Boaz is described in verse 1 of this chapter as a worthy man. That means he's a noble man. He does what is right. Also means that he has influence with, uh, within the community. He's kind, of a, he's kind of a leader in the community. And he is full of godly character among the people of God. He is a bright light among a nation that's completely lost its moral compass. Boaz obeys the law of God even though his countrymen do not. Boaz stayed in the promised land even during a famine, even though his kinsman Elimelech did not and left. Boaz runs his business God's way, even though his neighbors do not. And here's what's amazing about this, guys. I don't want you to miss this, okay? So dial in. He's not that special of a person. You get that? He's not a king. He didn't have like any like real big-time authority or power. He's not a prophet. He's not a miracle worker. He's just a business guy. He's simply a person, a believer, that allows his loyalty to God to affect every part of his life. It infiltrates every part of his life. The scripture also tells us here that Ruth just happens, just by accident, to be working diligently in his field as this man rides up to supervise all of his employees. And out of all the workers in that massive field, and out of all the things that he's got to check on that day to ensure that his business maintains a profit, he's got a lot to do that day. Boaz sees this poor, widowed Moabite named Ruth 
and he asks a question. He sees her, and he asks a question. Whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? Guys, listen. This is the question of the entire book of Ruth. It's the question of the entire book. If Boaz does not see Ruth and ask the question, if he chooses to simply ignore her and her situation instead of getting involved in her situation, guess what? There is no redemption of Ruth. There is no marriage to Ruth. And that means that there is no birth of a baby that will eventually lead to the birth of King David in Israel. And that means that there will be no Messiah named Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means that you and I are not sitting in this room today. And you and I are not forgiven of our sins. This is the question of the book. And here is what Boaz is asking himself, is what he's asking us as the readers. Who is responsible for this poor, young foreigner? Who's responsible for her? Where is the man that will take care of her? Because I'm looking, I don't see him around. That's what he's asking. And when Boaz sees her and learns more about her situation, he answers his own question like this. I'm responsible. I'll take care of her. This is the question that a worthy, righteous man asks. This is the question that the people of God are to collectively ask. Who is responsible for the vulnerable? And we are to say, we are. We are. Boaz doesn't see Ruth and say, you know what, I cannot believe these Moabites are coming over here and stealing our jobs. That doesn't, it's not what he says, is it? He also doesn't say, you know what, I cannot believe I gotta look at poor people out in my fields today. I just wanna go to work. I don't have to deal with that. He also does not say, you know what, hmm, here's a young, poor woman. I wonder what she'd do for some food. Boaz sees Ruth in his field, and he asks a question to learn more about her situation. She's a, she is poor, and she is a widow, and she is a foreigner, and Boaz knows that just one of those three factors makes her socially powerless and vulnerable to harm and being taken advantage of. And so when Boaz sees this, how vulnerable Ruth is, being the righteous, God-worshiping, God-honoring man that he is, it bothers him. He lets it bother him. Her powerlessness literally messes with his work agenda that day. Did you see that? Starts changing some things. Guys, we live in a day and an age where the prevailing wisdom is to look at every person and every problem through the glasses of cynicism and fear. That's the spirit of the age. And we have all kinds of justifications for why we do not get involved with the poor and the marginalized. We say things like this. You know what? They chose to live that way. They made their bed, they didn't sleep in it, for all I care. Or we say things like this. 
you know what? They put themselves in that situation because of their sins. Because of the poor choices that they made. Or we think, you know what? The whole thing is really simple. They're in that situation because they don't want to take personal responsibility for themselves. They just get out of it if they wanted to. And there's just enough truth in those simplistic slogans to justify why we don't need to get personally involved. We don't even want to ask them the question, who are you and what's your story? How did you get there? What is going on? And so I'm going I'm to be real with you guys. I, I always try to be. But uh, since Christmas, which by the way is not that long ago, you know where we love our fellow man? That whole season? Uh, since Christmas, God has been personally confronting me through a series of conversations with different people and through reading his word on this. God has shown me that when it comes to actually getting close to helping the fatherless, the foreigner, the poor, the vulnerable, the widow, I don't have half the compassion I think I do. That's hard for me to say to you, by the way. God has shown me that I actually rationalize my lack of involvement because of fears and prejudices and cynicism. Yet God calls his people up to something higher than fear and cynicism. God has called us to something more beautiful than living like that. He's called his church to be a light to the nations. How? By showing compassion to the weak and the vulnerable. Especially the ones that are seeking Christians as their refuge. Godly compassion, if it doesn't mean anything, at least means that we see them first. We see them. But we cannot see them if we're not near them. At least not near enough to hear their story. Like, like we talked about the interview, Crossway has a partnership with Coffee Oasis, and our leadership is looking at ways that we can be more active in that partnership, not just saying that we have a partnership. How can we be more involved in that partnership? So on, on Saturday, February the 3rd at 9 a.m., there is going to be a volunteer orientation. Coffee Oasis puts that out the first uh, Saturday of the month, and it's going to be at the center here in Port Orchard. You don't have to drive that far. Uh, I'm going to be going to it. Duel's one of our elders. He's going to it. I think there's some others. And we want to invite all of you to come with us and just come learn more information. It's not a commitment. It's coming to learn. But it's the next step. We're going to learn about how, uh, learn about the different entry ramps into that ministry so that we can actually help make a difference in the lives of at-risk youth right here in our own backyard. And that's one way we can apply the sermon. That's one way we can apply the scriptures of Ruth, which is actually the very next part of godly compassion. It's a pretty important part. Godly compassion acts on behalf of the vulnerable. Godly compassion acts on behalf of the vulnerable. And so whatever Ruth learned about the Lord Yahweh from her mother-in-law, we know how great a teacher Naomi was, right? But whatever she learned about Yahweh God, she must have learned that the Lord, unlike the other gods, has compassion for the socially vulnerable and the poor because Ruth requests access to God's provisions. 
So check this out. Leviticus 19.9. This is what Ruth is coming to her mind. This is what she's calling up to her mind while she's doing what she does, okay? Check this out. God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field, ride it to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So if you don't know what that is, he's saying, look, go through it, gather all the grain that you've planted, all the, all the grain that you've worked for, but the stuff that drops on the ground, don't go back and pick that up. You're not allowed to do that. You leave that on the ground. You're going to leave it there for the poor. So you need to factor that into your business and your budget. Verse 10, God says, And you shall not strip the vineyard bare, whether that's an olive tree or uh, grapes. Don't strip the vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes on, of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And here's the reason why. Here's the motivation why. I am the Lord your God. So Ruth knew that this law was made by Yahweh God for someone just like her. But what she doesn't know is what kind of man Boaz is yet. She lives in the day where the judges are judging, right? He can call himself a believer all he wants. Right? They're living in a time when God's people have no problem ignoring and disobeying God's law. There is rampant sexual assault, brutal violence, lying, bribing of justice, worshiping of false gods, apostasy, and dislike of authority. You can go back and read the book of Judges. It's awful. Not only this, but Ruth knows she's a young woman with an accent, working alone in somebody else's field, alongside a lot of young men, and she is just hoping against hope that she's landed in a field run by a righteous man in a morally corrupt nation. So Ruth's kind of a strong gal, isn't she? She's got a lot of faith in God, the God that wrote that. I'm, I'm trusting you, God. That's faith. So Boaz sees her, and he learns more about her situation. But what is he going to do to her now that he knows more about her? We don't know yet. How's he going to treat her now that he knows more of who she is? is? Is Boaz really a worthy man of God? Let's find out. Verse 8, 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels that they drink, that the young men have drawn. You don't go to a different water fountain. Go on up there with, with my guys. Let them drop for you. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you would take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz is a righteous man of God. Hooray! Get this, guys. Instead of using his age, like, he is closer to Naomi's age than her age, right? This is an older man. 
instead of using his age and his influence and his money and his power and his platform and his position to take advantage of Ruth, which he could have, Boaz leverages all of his resources to not only provide for her, but did you hear, protect her. Wow. Did you notice this? There's so much in just those three verses. I just want to pull two things out real quick, or we'd be here all day, all right? I want you to notice how Boaz protects her body and her dignity as a woman. He calls her daughter. First time he speaks to her and the first words out of his mouth. Daughter. He's putting her mind at ease that there is nothing sexual in this compassion he's showing to her. Just want to take that right off the table, sweetheart. This is, this is not a, I scratch your back, you come to my house later and scratch my back, if you know what I mean. That's not what we're doing here. You can trust me. I got you. Secondly, Boaz instructs the male workers not to touch her. That's sanitizing it a little bit. Naomi unsanitized it if you, you heard it later in the chapter. She knows what's going on in the land. Boaz does not merely provide food for Ruth, which is great, by the way. And by the way, that's all that the law required him to do. That's all he was required to do. Just lay out some food somewhere. But he, he goes beyond that. He ensures that she gets access to it without enduring abuse. This is a real man. This is the kind of man I want to be when I grow up. You know what I'm saying? It's an inspiration to me. Boaz is deliberately looking at the situation from Ruth's point of view. How else would he know that he needed to do that? He's looking at it from her point of view. He's thinking, look, what would block a young immigrant woman from accessing the food that's provided for her in a field? Hmm, what would get in her way of getting that? The answer is young male domestic workers that have been sweating since sunup, he knows they're probably going to resent her being there and picking up what they drop. He knows they're probably going to want to assault her in some way or intimidate her from coming back. He knows that. Boaz not only provides for her physical needs and protects her body and dignity as a woman, but he ensures she has access to those provisions. He is going beyond the letter of the law to fulfill the purpose of what, why that law was even written. He, he fulfills the purpose of it. His words of compassion have translated into real actions of provision and protection and access. Godly compassion acts on the behalf of the vulnerable. Since human beings are complex creatures, we, we are both body and soul, we are both body and mind, godly compassion needs to be holistic. We seek a person's welfare through meeting both their physical and their emotional needs, their dignity. You know, there, there's a way to be compassionate that actually robs the poor and robs the vulnerable of their dignity and exploits them when we do it. Did you know that? When we serve the vulnerable so that we feel good about ourselves, 
We serve the vulnerable so that our organization looks good. We're actually exploiting them for our own gain. We need them to be marginalized more than we need to help them out of that. Additionally, when we make provisions but we do not ensure there's access to it, we're not really doing them godly compassion. We're merely clearing our conscience so we'll feel better. Ruth shows us that the poor and the powerless have more barriers to overcome for human flourishing than the rest of us do. They got some additional challenges. That's why she's here. That's what she's doing for us. We need to listen to her. And just to be clear, family, access does not mean effortless. Access doesn't mean effortless. Ruth still had to gather the grain every day from sunup to sundown. Ensuring access means we work to remove obstacles, whether they are legal, physical, or emotional. And we can only know what someone's obstacles are if, like Boaz, we look at the situation from their perspective and ask some questions instead of assuming we know it. And to show this level of compassion, this is, there's compassion, this is godly compassion. To show this level of godly compassion, we need a vision, a picture of how God has shown us compassion. And we only get that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Godly compassion is given by people who have truly experienced it themselves. Godly compassion is given by people who have truly experienced it for themselves. The commands of God since the very beginning are based on what God has graciously done for his people. Grace always preceded the law. God's graciousness always came before instructions. It always has. We naturally obey God's law. Why? Because we're overwhelmed by the compassion that God has shown for us, the grace he's given to us. We show compassion to the powerless and the vulnerable even though it cost us something. Why? Because God in Christ was compassionate towards us even though it cost him infinitely more than it will ever cost us. Way more. I I want you to notice in in this passage we're going to read, notice the categories of Leviticus that Paul is pulling from when he explains the gospel of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Check this out. Ephesians chapter 2, starting 12. We'll skip to 18. He says, remember, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. But now... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. Didn't come near. Brought near. Brought near by the blood of Christ. Not just with words. It was by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 18. For through Christ, we both have access 
in one spirit to the Father. That's the Father of life, right? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints? Same level? With the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the very cornerstone. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel says here is our situation, every one of us. We were foreigners by birth to God. That means we were separated from God by birth in our sin. And as we grew, we rejected God. We actively sinned against God, right? We rejected God. And so God rejected us. And because of that, we had no hope in this life, and we had no hope in the life to come. We didn't. We had no protection. We had no provisions. And we had no access to those sweet, wonderful promises of God and provisions that he's made for his people. And that was our situation, each and every one of us without exception. But the gospel says this. It is good news. And the good news says, now we have access to the promises of God. Now we who are former aliens and powerless have citizenship in God's family. We have been brought in. We have been adopted into God's family. We who were spiritually dying of hunger have been fed to the full. And guess what? This did not happen because of our own resources. We did not pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We did not remove our own obstacles. We were powerless to save ourselves. We were powerless to save ourselves. We needed a Boaz to look at us and say, how can I have compassion on him? How can I have compassion on her? That's what we desperately needed. The gospel says that Christ is our better Boaz. Christ showed us compassion by seeing us instead of ignoring us. Praise God. He acted on our behalf, though it would cost him dearly. It would cost him blood on a cross is what it would cost him. And he knew that, and he did it anyway. Jesus did not merely provide his provisions. I mean, he did that. But he didn't just merely provide provisions. Get this, guys. He became our provision. He incarnated, right? He became our very provision, the very access door to the Father of life, the very bread of life. Jesus became a provision not through a barley field, but through the bloody cross. That's your God. That's my God. Praise his name. Praise his name. He did that for you. He did that for you. Yes, you. He did that for me. When we see the cost that Christ gladly paid for us, though we did not deserve it, it makes us want to do the same for others. It makes us want to do the same for others. It's the power of the gospel in his church. I love you guys. Let's pray.
bread of life, we love you. Door of life, we love you. Thank you for becoming our provisions, not just pointing it's over that way. Good luck. If you can reach it. Thank you for making us alive and bringing us to the Father. And Jesus, I pray that your words would have power today in our hearts. And please start with me. Change what we value so that we might value what you do and live like you do in this world. Help Crossway be a light to this world and to Port Orchard. So I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, you take your gospel and you would massage it into deep places, even healing up cracks in our heart that need it. so that we would represent you well and love like you did. We love you so much. Amen. Amen.